This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. The murder of 11 Jews at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue three years ago this month was the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history. But in his new book, Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting and the Soul of a Neighborhood, Mark Oppenheimer focuses less on the gunman and the shooting than on where it occurred, drawing from interviews with residents and non-residents, rabbis and historians, high schoolers, and senior citizens. Squirrel Hill also examines the century-old currents of Judaism in Pittsburgh, the range and variety of belief, tradition, and custom visible in the aftermath of the attack, and the response of a diverse, close-knit community. My conversation with Mark Oppenheimer is coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Mark Oppenheimer, thanks for being here today on the Commonweal Podcast. Thanks for having me. So your book focuses on the aftermath of the attack at the Tree of Life Synagogue, examining, as you have it in the subtitle, the soul of a neighborhood. Uh, but I wonder if first you could lay out the basic details of what happened back on October 27, 2018. Sure. That was a Saturday morning, Shabbat, the Jewish Sabbath, and the shooter, I, I should say alleged shooter, the evidence is very strong. He was caught in the act and, and shot himself and taken to the hospital and, is, and, and arrested and charged with many counts of attempt of murder and attempted murder and is still awaiting trial, but also alleged shooter. He's not been convicted, but the shooter entered the Tree of Life synagogue building in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood of Pittsburgh at the corner of Shady and Wilkins Avenues and 11 Jews from three different congregations because Tree of Life housed not only its own congregation, Tree of Life, but also rented space to two other congregations who used other rooms in the building. Dor Hadash is the name of one, uh, which means the new generation and new light. So there were three congregations in the building that lost members that day. 11 people died. 11 people got out alive, although two of them were badly wounded. Nine escaped without any physical injury. So of the 21 Jews and one Gentile inside. There was a, a Christian man who was the custodian of the building. Of the 22 people, 11 were dead, two wounded. It was the greatest, most deadly anti-Semitic attack in American history since before or after the founding of the United States. Worst slaughter of Jews ever on, on this soil. And it's it absolutely reverberated throughout the Jewish world. And what I was interested in looking at was the consequences, not just in the larger Jewish world, but also in the immediate neighborhood. I felt that a lot of journalism about mass killings, and there have been dozens, indeed hundreds of mass killings. If you use the FBI rubric, which says a mass killing is four people or more shot or killed in one instance, the literature on mass killings tends to focus on the killer. And I was not particularly interested in the killer or the crime. I was interested in the aftermath and the reverberations and how people suffer, but also how people come together and help each other. And I was very interested in this particular neighborhood, which is a, a very close-knit and old Jewish neighborhood. And I was interested in how its history helped promote resilience in the aftermath of this attack. Well, you actually have roots in the neighborhood. Is that right? Is that also in part what drew you to take up this project? As it happens, I do. My father is a fifth generation Pittsburgher. His great-grandfather, so my three times great-grandfather, Isaac Oppenheimer, came over to Pittsburgh from Europe, from Central Europe in the 1840s. Uh, another thrice great-grandfather of mine 
Wilhelm or William Frank was among the four Jewish men who got together to purchase the land for the first Jewish burial ground in Pittsburgh. And again, that was 1847, I think. So by the way, the Jews have come to stay, that they're not moving on when they buy land for a burial ground. That's the first thing you do is you make sure if you're going to put down roots that there's some place to bury your dead that's been consecrated Jewishly. So my dad was a fifth generation Pittsburgher and his family had lived in Squirrel Hill for three generations ever since it became a neighborhood really around the time of World War I. So although I did not grow up in Pittsburgh, I grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts, I was very steeped in the family lore of the five generations that had been in Pittsburgh. It's interesting uh, the way you approach this book too. I like the organization of the portrait of the community and its response to the event. And you break the chapters down with titles like those inside and the Gentiles and the bodyguards and the symbols. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what those titles mean and how you arrived at this structure. Yeah, I'm glad you liked the structure. It's a little unconventional, I think roughly chronological, but it also dips forward and back in time a little bit because the chapters, as you suggest, are thematic. I was interested in all the different kinds of people whose lives changed in the aftermath of the shooting. All the people who had something to do. I think, as I put it in one place, all the people who kept paying attention. You know, everyone stops and notices when there's a mass shooting. Maybe it's 3,000 miles from home or 2,000 miles from home or across the globe. You notice it in your newsfeed on your phone or as a headline in a newspaper. You think about it. You think, oh, well, that's a shame. And then you move on. But for every mass killing, there is a community of people who don't just move on, who either are personally affected and therefore suffer because they're in mourning, they've lost someone, there's grief, or they don't move on because they do something in response to it. And I was curious about the people who did something because of this. So to take the example of one chapter you gave me, the bodyguards, what that refers to is the religious Jews who make it a point to keep watch over the dead bodies until they are in the ground. The idea in Judaism is you never let a dead body be unattended. That's that they have to be shepherded into the ground. And so in the time between death and the burial, which you try to make as short as possible in Judaism, you try to bury people within 24 hours. But when it's a crime scene and when there has to be an investigation, it can take a a bit longer. It can take a few days. And the idea is that you have somebody near the body praying over the body saying psalms, if not directly over the body, maybe in the next room over the entire time. And so there's a community of people called Shomrim, which means guards, who organize a rotation of doing an hour here or two or three hours here of standing by the bodies, saying psalms until the bodies are put in the ground. And these are people who may not know the victims, but they've agreed to step up and take this role. Um, Just to give you a wildly contrasting example, there is the woman who came to Pittsburgh with her dogs that were trained as, we would say, therapy dogs. Her professional term for them is canine advocates. And she came from, she had been in central Pennsylvania at a show for the dogs. They were show dogs and then left and, and went to Pittsburgh with the dogs to use the dogs to help people process their grief as we now sometimes use domestic animals. So that's someone else who had no particular connection to the shooting, but she stopped and she did something. And there are all kinds of people who do something. And that was the, the question I was after. Mm. Well, actually, in that chapter of the bodyguards, too, you you spend some time uh, describing the tahara, the preparation of the body for burial in the Jewish tradition. And I'm wondering if you could maybe describe this a little bit more for our listeners and also how it was handled here in the aftermath of uh, of this event. 
Sure. Tahara is the ritual cleansing and preparation of a Jewish uh, met, M-E-T, you would transliterate it, or which means corpse, into, it, it's the preparation of the, the met, the corpse, for burial. The body is washed and anything artificial, makeup or dirt is removed using waters poured over the body. All fluids are cleaned off the body and jewelry is removed. The body has to be returned to its most natural possible state. You do this while saying prayers. There's a, a ritual around it. And then the body is sewn into a linen or muslin shroud to be prepared for, to go to rest. And the people who do this in Judaism are organized into what's called a Hevra Kedisha, which means a holy society. You could call it, I, in my book, I call it a holy society. You could call it a burial society. And these are people who, and men do male bodies, women do female bodies. And these are people who have learned the art of Tahara, of preparation of the body. In Pittsburgh, there are two holy societies, one for, broadly speaking, for Orthodox Jews, one that comprises members who are more liberal Jews, theologically, Reformed Jews, conservative, Reconstructionist. But they cooperate, they share knowledge. Both holy societies were involved in the preparation of certain bodies for burial in, of the 11 who were murdered. And it's a, it's a kind of, it's not a lost art, but it's an unknown art. And that's partly because the members of a holy society never talk about their work. There's a tradition of anonymity where it's not top secret. It's not, there's nothing ritualized about the secrecy around it. It's not a secret society, but you, you typically keep private who the names of the members are. You don't, they don't advertise. They're known about through word of mouth. And then if someone dies, a rabbi might say to the family, would you like the, the funeral home to do it? Or would you like the Hever Kadisha, the Holy Society? And in Pittsburgh, a lot of the families opted to have the traditional Hever Kadisha do the burials. Yeah, it's a, a very sort of moving part of the book, uh, too. I, I just want to maybe point that out and to listeners as For well. me, too. I was incredibly moved. I, I knew nothing about uh, Hever Kadisha's most non-Orthodox Jews, and even many Orthodox Jews don't know much about this. There's been a kind of renaissance of the Hever Kedisha in America. There are national organizations that are trying to promote it as part of a kind of, it fits into a, a natural death movement that's going on in America anyways, of not using embalming fluids and trying to be more environmentally friendly. So it was really news to me. Yeah. Yeah. There's a chapter two called The Symbols, as I, I mentioned. And I, I thought it was interesting the way you delve into the images that were summoned and put forth in the aftermath of, of this event. And some of them seem to capture authentically the grief being felt or to inspire actual hope and renewal. Well, others seemed, even if well-meaning, awkward or maybe even inappropriate. So an example of the former might be the, the repurposed Pittsburgh Steelers logo mashup with the Star of David and the word Stronger Than Hate. And then there was an example of the latter might be these white crosses, these crosses for losses that were provided by a man named Greg Zanus, I believe his name is pronounced, which were topped with stars of David. How did the community react to these and, and some of the other symbols that appeared following the shooting? One of the things I was very interested in and got increasingly interested in was the aesthetic response and the visual response to this sad day. And... Yes. Um, it was everything from a repurposed Pittsburgh Steelers logo in which the yellow hypocycloid in the Pittsburgh Steelers logo was replaced with a yellow star of David. And then the legend stronger than hate was inserted on the left-hand side where you might normally see the word Steelers. So it became a Pittsburgh 
slash Steelers slash Jewish unity symbol. And that sign was created by a German-American non-Jewish Lutheran graphic designer named Tim Hindis, who lived in the south suburbs of Pittsburgh. He did it on his laptop a few hours after the shooting just because he wanted to do something. He put it out on social media and it became an instant sensation. And by the next day, people were holding up signs with that logo at the Steelers game for posting it on Facebook by the hundreds of thousands, if not the millions. And then also, almost simultaneously, the famous Crosses for Losses nonprofit organization, which was the one-man show of an evangelical Christian named Greg Zanus, who died last winter of cancer, but not before I was able to interview him several times, arrived in town so that he could plant 11 crosses in the ground with the names of the victims painted in black on the white crosses. He was actually very sensitive religiously when he was putting a cross in the ground for a Jewish victim. He would cover up the cross, the intersection of the two bars of the cross with a star of David. For Muslims, he would use a crescent moon and he he had other symbols for other religions. So he tried to be very sensitive about it. And very quickly, what happened, which it happened everywhere Greg Zanus went, and he was a fixture at mass shootings everywhere in the country. He was at Columbine, he was at Parkland, you name it. This is what he did with his life. He put millions of miles on a succession of pickup trucks driving around the country, giving crosses to the the grounds where people had been killed. It quickly became, his crosses quickly became part of the scenery. People would go and look at them. Other kind of memorial tributes like flowers and works of handicraft would be placed around the crosses. The crosses became a centerpiece. And I think, again, crosses with stars of David on them. They were really stars of David put into the ground. I think that most people accepted it as a kind of beautiful and instantly recognizable symbol. There was some grumbling that it wasn't local. People who knew the story a bit would say, why is it that the visual centerpiece of the grounds around the Tree of Life synagogue became 11 crosses, stars of David, whatever you would have that were put there by somebody who drove in from Aurora, Illinois and didn't know any of the victims? Obviously, it was very well-meaning and the crosses have been preserved. They're inside the synagogue to this day. And I think people reach out as they can. Thousands of things of works of visual craft arrive in the aftermath of something like this. People send in hand crocheted stars of David. People send in teddy bears, stones, flowers, you name it. So the visual residue of something like this is overwhelming. We'll get back to my conversation with Mark Oppenheimer in a minute. But first, if you like what you're hearing, I'd like to encourage you to rate and review the Commonweal Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. Your reviews help us bring these conversations to new listeners. And if you haven't already, consider making a one-time or recurring donation. Your support helps make our work possible. Just visit the donate link at our website. To pick up on uh, this a little bit, something you mentioned a moment ago, too, you have a chapter called The Visitors in which you talk about the descent on Pittsburgh of people from around the country. You know, obviously many uh, well-meaning, but some, too, who not who apparently seemed not quite so self-aware, even if they were well-meaning. And this, you say in the book, at times would put a strain on the community, even as they tried to be welcoming. What were some of the most awkward and troubling visits? And how did the community and its leaders go about handling the situation? One of the things that happens after an act of mass killing is there are people who want to come 
some people are content to send things or to give money to relief funds that are set up, but a lot of people want to come. And so one of the things that every community encounters is what to do with these well-meaning people who show up but have no particular role. Sometimes they show up, they pray outside the scene of the crime, and then they check themselves into a motel and take a Greyhound bus home the next day and they feel that they've done their part. Some people show up and they immediately want to be hosted. Uh, so one example I give in my book is a man from Israel who happens to be in the country, in the United States, traveling around, but made a beeline for Pittsburgh when the shooting happened, who is a professional medical clown. This is a real profession. It's actually quite big in Israel. And these are people who visit sick people and try to get them to laugh and cheer them up, which many people argue does have therapeutic benefits. And, and so hospitals are usually happy to have them. But he came to town and he wanted to work with people to help them process their trauma. He ended up visiting at least one nursery school to work with the kids. And as far as I could tell, and this was based on his own description, he might have, it was unclear if he made anyone feel happier or if he freaked them out a little bit. Kids who were already a little bit scared, who knew that there was trauma in the air, that the adults all seemed a little bit upset and not themselves. And then you have this weird clown guy come in and he needed to be hosted and he wanted the local Jewish leaders to find venues for him to go to so that he could make himself of use, which of course is creating work for them. It's very well-meaning, obviously, but there can, I don't want to speak specifically about him, but in general, these people who are referred to by one person I knew as trauma tourists, in general, there can be something narcissistic about what they're doing. That is to say, they want to feel important and feel that they've been of use, but rather than saying to the community, what do you need? And do you need me to come? Or would it be easier if I waited a few weeks and gave you a chance as a community to get through burying your dead and grieving them? That's something they don't always think about. Hmm. There were some celebrity uh, visitors as well, like Tom Hanks, for instance. Yeah. Tom Hanks came. He, there's a photograph in my book of him embracing Joanne Rogers, who's the widow of Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers of TV. Uh, the Rogers is lived in Squirrel Hill and they went to the Presbyterian Church at the corner of Forbes and Murray, which is the, the heart of Squirrel Hill. Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots, also came to town. The Well, he was there to see the Patriots play the Steelers, but he came in a day early and went to Jewish services, went to pray at Tree of Life Synagogue. I have a photograph of him wearing the Pittsburgh Steelers stronger than hate Jewish star yarmulke. I think it's probably the only extant photograph of Kraft in the sports logo uh, of a team other than the Patriots wearing another team's paraphernalia. Celebrities like to come and people like it when they come, to be fair. they It's exciting when they come. Yeah, but there was another visitor, of course, too, and that was President uh, Trump, who arrived in the aftermath of the shooting. And you handle this, I think, in a very balanced way in the book. You note the displeasure at his visit among some, but there was not universal opposition to it either. But maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how the, how the community reacted to this visit and whether this is a real test of the unity of the community or how that all played out. Sure. The visit was controversial. There were people who were excited he was coming and felt, and, and this included some people who had not voted for him, but felt the president should come. What would it look like if there was a mass killing of American Jews and the president didn't come? Wouldn't that be horrible? And they felt that it was appropriate that he come and they were glad he came. And he claimed he came on the Tuesday after the shooting was a Saturday. He came three days later, which was also the first day of funerals uh, in town. So it was a, a difficult time. And there were those who felt he it was OK to come, but he should have waited, that he shouldn't have 
pulled his motorcade into Squirrel Hill on a day when already there was tremendous traffic because of the funerals and people were at loose ends emotionally and otherwise. And then there were people who felt he had no business coming because they blamed the shooting in part on the rise of white nationalist rhetoric that they felt that Trump had either fueled or at the very least suborned. So there are people who were glad to see him. There were people who accepted that he came. The rabbi of the synagogue of of the Tree of Life synagogue, Jeffrey Myers, met with him and took him inside the synagogue, talked with him and the first lady for 20 minutes or so, sang songs of peace, gave speeches and uh, expressed their displeasure at his coming. But ultimately, one of the things that I think is very typical of Squirrel Hill and perhaps would not be the case elsewhere is that there was a, a mutual respect between people of different opinions on this. And, and then there was a massive uh, protest when, and several thousand people turned out in the streets of Squirrel Hill peacefully. There was one arrest. There was no lasting acrimony as far as I could tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes a, a sort of a good, I guess, segue to the next question. I want to go back to the outset of, of, of your book where you describe how when you first started talking to people in Squirrel Hill, you were struck by the accounts you heard of these anonymous acts of hesed, if I'm saying the word mm-hmm. correctly. And pretty close. I, well, uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> can, you, can, you <laughs> can you do a fricative in the back of your throat? You say hesed. Chesed. Yes. That's it. There you <laughs> go. It's, just, okay. it's the same, it's the same CH you, you do your in challah, the, the bread that we eat on Friday night. So it's, and some people can't do it. In fact, my mother-in-law can't, who is Jewish, cannot do the kind of guttural CH. And in, in Jewish, that's a speech impediment. If you can't say chesed or, or Hanukkah, that's a Jewish speech impediment, but it's not everyone can, and that's fine. But you did very good work on that. Well, thus encouraged, I'll say it again. Could you give uh, that wonderful translation of chesed that you provide in the book, what it means? Sure. I mean, it's not my translation. It's a common one in Jewish circles, but it's one I love and am happy to use Chesed is trans, often translated as one word that is rendered loving kindness, which is to say it's not just kindness. It's not you might do a kind act for a stranger and that's nice, but a, a kindness has a can be pretty minor and fleeting. And it's not necessarily love. You don't necessarily know the people you're doing an act of chesed for. It's not that you love them, but it's kindness infused with love. It's kind of an, it's an intentional kindness. And we talk a lot in Judaism about chesed. Synagogues will, the, the committee of people who visit the sick or bring meals to, to new mothers, for example, will often be called, as it is at my synagogue, the chesed committee. And yeah, I think, that, I think the community abounded with acts of chesed in the aftermath of the shooting of people doing random things for other people or not so random things, but going above and beyond to, to nurture people, to bring, and not just the families of the victims, but everyone for each other, bringing meals, sharing childcare, just generally reaching out to people and supporting each other. And that's something that you don't see that in the aftermath of all mass killings. And that's for a fairly specific reason, I think. It's not that Jews are more chesed-filled than other people. What you saw in this case was that the killings happened to a particular community. Yes, they were from three congregations. Yes, it was 11 people from eight families, I think, because there was a married couple that was killed. And then there was a, uh, or maybe I should say 10 families. And then there was a pair of brothers who were killed. But But all of them were Jews who, for the most part, lived or had strong connections to a particular square quarter mile or square half mile of land. Uh, A lot of them were multi-generational families, Jews who'd been there for a long time. They knew each other and, and everyone knew them. Most mass killings, if you think about it, are happened to to groups of people where the dead have nothing in common with each other, except they happened to be at the same shopping mall or in the same post office that day. 
right? And so when that happens, if it's Columbine or, or if it's the one where there was a movie theater that was shot. In Aurora, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it's a group of people who were killed because they, were, they all happen to go see the same movie, they are probably from different towns. Like all they have in common is they're from the same 20 mile radius around the movie theater, right? The same arterial freeway takes them all home to one exit or another. And so the families don't know each other. They may be radically different. They might not like each other when they meet each other. And all of them are being supported by different communities. One or two of them might have strong church communities or extended kinship networks of family, but someone else might be alone in the world, far from family. Someone else might be homeless, but scraped together money for a ticket that day. But it's not a community of people it's happened to. And so they're often, each individual victim often leaves family members and, or survivors who feel very isolated. But this was an attack like the attack on Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston on a specific worship community of people who knew each other quite well, who were very much in each other's lives. And that really creates the networks and the possibility for acts of chesed that otherwise might not find their intended recipient. So the subtitle of the book, The Soul of a Neighborhood, which I think is a a really compelling and, and accurate subtitle given how you picked this neighborhood and what we learn about it and reading about it, is the soul of the neighborhood still evident? I I asked this kind of in thinking about the recent anniversary of 9-11, how now we always recall the aftermath of those attacks as a time when the country was unified and we bemoan the passing of that spirit since. And in your epilogue, you hint at something similar at Squirrel Hill. There's a quote from somebody who says, you know, for a while after the attack, the walls went away, one interviewee says, but now they're coming back. Is that something that you noticed or sensed yourself? And and what do you see in the months and years and decades to come? Look, it's not only the case that life goes back to normal, but life should go back to normal. Nobody can survive and thrive in a heightened state of either anxiety or boundless, borderless love. That's just for the same reason that you can't exist in the, you know, first blush of romance that you feel in the first weeks or months that you're dating someone, you have to return to the real world and you want to return to the real world. At a certain point, it becomes maintenance, right? And I think that is the way of humanity. That is the way of life. And part of what that person, Dan Legger, is saying in my book is that the very intentional connectivity that people show in the aftermath of mass killing is a beautiful thing. You hope it leaves some residue. You hope that people have some tendencies that carry over from that aftermath when they go back to to normal life. I think certainly they have. I think that it's a community that's come through it even stronger, even more committed to the neighborhood. I think that people have always been committed to Squirrel Hill and preserving it and not letting the community disperse to the suburbs or other neighborhoods. They want to keep historical Squirrel Hill strong. I think that commitment is probably stronger than ever. But of course, it's the case that if for the first few weeks, everyone's trying to be aggressively nice all the time, people begin being again and snarky and sarcastic <laughs> mm-hmm. and jerky. And you would want them to. I, I don't, if we look back to the extreme earnestness that pervades after 9-11 or something like that, none of us wants to actually live in, actually live in that world. So that's okay. So Mark, I want to really thank you for being with us today in the Come Away sure. podcast. I feel we've, these were really great conversation and I think barely scratched the surface of all that you managed to convey in, in your book, which I think I'm recommending without reservation to our listeners. So thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm very proud of the book. I worked on it for a long time and I interviewed a lot of people and I, I hope I got the neighborhood right because I'm not from there. I was an interloper 
I did visit a lot and my dad's from there, but I'm from New England and this was really new ground for me, new territory. So I just hope that I did it justice. I think you did. Thanks very much. Thank you. Mark Oppenheimer's book is Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting and the Soul of a Neighborhood. It's available now. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.